Welcome to the Italian Football Podcast with John Solano, Carlo Garganese and Nima Tuvali. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another interview episode of the Italian Football Podcast. I'm Carlo Garganese, and today's guest is a multi-talented journalist, broadcaster, and political commentator. He is the co-founder of the UK's leading independent media company, Novara Media. He is also the author of the book, Fully Automated Luxury Communism, And he is a big football fan, a big Calcio fan, and a fan, I believe, of Fiorentina. So we are delighted to welcome onto the show Aaron Bastani. Aaron, how are you doing, mate? Salve. How are you doing, Carlo? Um, <laughs> I'm doing very well, thank you. Well, hi, Aaron. It's Nima. Thank you again for joining us. Um, so let's start with your interest in football and Italian football specifically. I mean, you mentioned me, to me privately that you used to live in Florence, and that's how you started supporting Fiorentina. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I always, growing up, I liked watching them. Obviously, you had a re- really great side. You had Batistuta, Francesco Toldo, you know, um, they were always there or thereabouts, top four, top five side. And this is, you know, the sort of apogee of Italian football in the in the early, mid-1990s. I was there last day of the season, I think, when they made it. And I think Luca Toni scored. He, of course, did his trademark goal celebration. And at the time, there was this big debate about, what is he, what is he saying? But apparently, maybe you guys can correct me, it was... Change the radio station over. Listen in, Luca. Luca Toni scored for Fiorentina again. <laughs> and I, I think, I think that year. Again, I might be wrong. I think it wasn't just he didn't just get Capocannoneri. He got maybe European Golden Boot. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, he did. Yeah, thirty-one goals, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I mean, he was just he was unstoppable that year. So it was. I mean, I, I picked a good year to go and watch them, and I watched a couple of international matches as well. I watched. Um, there was a friendly, Italy Germany friendly. Oh yeah, in Florence 4-1. that year. Yeah. Uh, that was great. That was really fun to watch, and um, I, I, I knew a few characters from a local gym in the in the in the sort of historic centre I used to work out in. Um, the gym was on. Oh God, where was it? It was near Via degli Alfani in the historic centre. I mean, that sounds like I'm an American tourist, but it was a proper gym, <laughs> and it was a great way of meeting loads of sort of rat bags who do the Calcio Storico and <laughs> Dorman and all that stuff. So obviously, going to watch a, a Germany match with them was great fun. <laughs> uh, and then finally, there was um, there was a Coppa Italia match. I remember as well. If I if I recall correctly, there was tear gas involved. So I got the full I got the full Italian football experience. <laughs> um, you mentioned Calcio Storico. Did you go to any of those games? Uh, and, and did you or did you play it or, or were you able? No, to? <laughs> no, no, I never played it. No, oh my god! No, I I, I did watch one. Um, I think. I think if I recall, it was so violent it got cancelled. That <laughs> yeah, sounds match. about right. Sounds about I right. <laughs> and um, what was amazing was uh, it was. I think it was called off, and then so people started throwing their tickets on the ground, and then <laughs> and then immediately I remember these kind of these Spanish guys who I was friends with picking up all the tickets, and then they were claiming that they were going to they were tour operators and they wanted a refund. <laughs> they had like they had, their default was this immediate scam, you know, which I thought was which was great. 
<laughs> Brilliant. Um, well, uh, what's your? I mean, what's your favorite Italian city, and 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 why? I mean, it's when you lived in Florence, because when I lived in Florence, I used to, I traveled quite a bit around in Tuscany, and I absolutely fell yeah. in love with with Tuscany. Uh, what about you? Do you have any favorite place in Italy? Well, yeah, I mean, Tuscany is sport for choice, aren't you? Just for mm. sort of picturesque places, you've got Arezzo, Luca, Grosseto, mm. uh, smaller places, of course, you know, villages and so on. Mm. Uh, I really, this is going to sound strange, I really like Bologna. Yeah. Um, I think as a city, it's got a really nice quality of life. I mean, as a tourist yeah. destination, it might not be high at people's sort of list. It's not up there with, you know, Venezia or something, but I really like Bologna. I really like Parma. I'm mm. quite boring. You know, I like food, nice city, nice surroundings, well connected. Mm. Um, Genoa's nice. Uh, but I've never been to Sicily, so maybe maybe I'd be convinced by Catania or Palermo. Mm. Yeah, I think the Gazetta did the other day, or it might have been the Corriere, they did a, a rankings of the, the best quality in life in Italy by city. And I think Bologna was was top three. In, okay, in, that's good to in, know. And Parma you know, as well. But, but, but I mean, Parma, I completely understand because it's you eat, yeah. the food there is just unbelievable. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's like it's... it's, Na- it's Na- Naples and Foggia were in the bottom three. That's that's my mum's hometown and my dad's hometown. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's a blast from the past. I mean, yeah. Again, to, you know, growing up again, you know, uh, Brian Roy being up yeah. from Foggia. You know, I. Oh yeah. Ha, you know, Foggia was a it tells you about sort of brand Italy in the mid nineteen nineties. You know, mm. Foggia was a name that millions of people would have known, and now less so. Without being rude to Foggia, obviously. <laughs> no, no, they had a great team. Did you, you named Novara Media after Novara, didn't you? Is that is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. yeah. Um, we had some Italian authors um, that we interviewed a few years ago. Uh, Wooming Foundation Collective. They, well, they used, they used to be called the Luther Blissett Collective. Um, <laughs> and they, they wrote a book called Q, which was a, a huge European bestseller about 20 years ago. And um, they said, you know, in Italian, why the hell have you called it Novara Media? It's just crazy. What a weird thing to call a media company. And... Um, it's the filming location uh, for a film called The Working Class Goes to Heaven, La Classe Opera in Paradiso. Um, a, great, a great film, a favorite film of, of, my, uh, of mine and my co-founder. So, you know, we thought it's a kind of got like a, a vibe, you know, made in Dagenham sort of vibe. Um, <laughs> and uh, Navarra has a kind of trans transnational quality. It could be Italian, it could be Spanish, it could be Portuguese. You know, it's a bit like when Ford choose models for their cars, you know, Sierra, Mondeo, <laughs> you know, everybody kind of, you know, that's nice sounding phonetically. So yeah, that's why we chose it. Um, speak, let's talk a little bit about the Euros. Um, what, what did you make of that, that Italy side that won the Euros <clears throat> against England in the final? You know, it's, it's, it's strange, isn't it? I, I do think there's a huge gulf in football Footballing, not footballing talent. I, the quality of, of what you're watching is is so different international level to Champions League. And I wonder how good that England and Italy side would do against, you know, top Champions League sides. Mm. I, I don't think they would win, you know, um, a major tournament, for instance. If you look at England, Luke Shaw and Harry Maguire looked phenomenal. And now for Eng- uh, for Manchester United, <laughs> you know, I mean, Luke Shaw's a shamble. I mean, that's that's probably just partly a hangover, but... He, he looked like the best left back in the world last summer, mm. and I, 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 I suspect he probably isn't the best left back in the world. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm inclined um, to agree. <laughs> yeah, Italy. I think I thought Italy's Italy's main strength was you know spirit decor and their sort of togetherness, tactically very astute. 
fantastic goalkeeper and two centre-backs in front of him, which to win tournaments is what you need. There's mm-hmm. that great quote by Fabio Cannavaro out today, I think, or yesterday. Um, and he said, you know, uh, strikers might win you games, but defenders win you championships. Mm. And I think that's that's so true. And my worry was when England, I don't know if I can swear on this podcast, can I swear? swear? <laughs> yeah, you go away, you when England tried to shithouse a 1-0 win against Italy in a final, you think, you don't do that against the Italians, <laughs> you know? So I thought either they're going to, I thought they might blow Italy away because they scored so early. I thought either they win this three or four nil, or Italy are going to win this. Mm. Um, and the longer it went on one nil, I just thought Gareth Southgate, you're not Marcello Lippi. This isn't <laughs> going to work. Oh dear. No. Well, yeah, uh, that, that's actually yeah, that's a good point because I mean, if England did play pretty much catenaccio, and that is what the correct use of the word term catenaccio, not the way it was used in the summer and um, <laughs> in the media by some people. Um, sp- speaking of, um, I mean, let's, I mean, you, you're a political commentator, you're a political animal. Um, do you, I mean, there's this endless debate about sports and politics. I want to hear your thoughts. Do you think that football and politics sh- should mix? You know, I could give you a sort of cliched leftist answer, which is, oh, you know, sport is political and, um, you know that, that that you know you can't divide the two, which obviously is is correct. That's obviously true, um, but I do worry sometimes that you know people can't enjoy a footballer because they don't agree with his political opinions, which I think is silly. You know, I think ultimately it's a game that should be enjoyed for its aesthetic pleasure, um, or if you're involved in it yourself, because you know it's team sport and it, it it manifests all these nice things about being alive, like team effort, hard work, overcoming adversity, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, of course, sport's political, but you also don't want to take it too far. You know, you don't want to be, you don't want to be supporting as a, you don't, you don't see kids supporting footballers purely because they agree with their political views. I think that sort of be a bit of a shame. You know, it's meant to be more enjoyable than that. But at the same time, you know, when you see, for instance, people saying, oh, football shouldn't take the knee because it's politics. You shouldn't have that in sport. Well, you know, overwhelmingly, these are young men of color. Uh, it's an industry which has, you know, huge numbers of of, of young people of color. Uh, I should say women as well. Obviously, the focus was on the on the on the men's team teams over the summer, <clears throat> and on the on the on the Premier League side since uh, again the, the men's Premier League. And I think obviously they have a right to talk about and and protest and express things that matter to them, and they have you know players associations which listen to their concerns and grievances and act accordingly like any workplace so you know it's an interesting one isn't it i i I have absolutely no issue with uh sport in politics but i I think also you know sport should be enjoyed on its own on its own terms it's a bit like with literature you know people say oh Mm. i really enjoyed that book but the author's a a right-wing arsehole i I don't i don't like it anymore Mm. or the film the director of the filmmaker is an arsehole you know they said this they're cancelled you think Mm. i mean come on that's I think that's somewhat myopic. I mean, it's a slightly separate thing. I was just going to ask you, I mean, we're a little, you know, since we're on the topic, um, I mean, Mm. we are living in a time of cancel culture and Mm. and this is something we're seeing even in football. Um, Personally, I kind of agree with you on that. I mean, I think, for example, someone like Woody Allen, his movies, I love his films, Mm. but it doesn't mean that I have to agree with everything he's done in his life. I mean, Ingmar Bergman, Swedish director, one of the best of all time. He was a Nazi for seven years. I mean, again we have to be able to separate these, you know, the art and the artist, or, or do you, do you not agree? No, I can, I completely agree. I mean, there's obviously, I mean, there, there, there are boundaries and so on and things are, are relatively permeable, but no, I completely agree. 
especially for great art. I mean, you know, where, where would you want to draw the line? <clears throat> you know, somebody, a reactionary would say, well, Leonardo da Vinci, I don't enjoy his art because the man was a homosexual. And we would, we would find that, A, we would find that repulsive, but then B, we would say, what a, what a strange, bizarre thing to say. <laughs> he's, he's clearly a genius, whatever, yeah. you know. So I, I, you know, I think the Woody Allen one's a good one. Um, I don't want to get into a debate about platforming and all these things because obviously who people choose to give awards to or have a platform to or whose films they choose to fund is their business. Yeah. But I, I think that's true. I don't think somebody should say, oh, I'm not going to watch a film. I'm not going to watch a Woody Allen film um, because of, of his private life, his personal mm. life. I think, that's, I think that's quite strange. And I think very quickly you run out of actually of people that you would want to watch. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, there's a, I've recently read a great um, series of books by a Chinese author called Xi Jin Yu, or Liu Xi Jin, um, the science fiction trilogy. Really great. And people are saying, well, you know, he's, a, he's, he's an apologist for the Chinese Communist Party. And you think, well, if he wasn't a, an apologist for the Chinese Communist Party, he's a very high profile figure in China, he'd, he'd probably be in prison. Like, what, you know, what, what, what do you want? You know, you want the guy to go, you know, so I, I, I just. He's not done anything overtly bad, as far as I can tell. <laughs> so you know, it's the same. You know, same in Italy. You've got you've got fantastic, you know, uh, literature in the nineteenth century mm. or whatever. You know, Alessandro Manzoni or whatever. <clears throat> God knows what their politics were. Yeah. God knows exactly. Um, but I mean, sports washing has been a big talking point in football recently, <clears throat> um, especially after the Saudi state-run fund, pub, the public investment fund, took over Newcastle. And, and, and there's talk of, I don't know if it's official yet, but there's talk of the Premier League uh, chairman resigning because of it. Mm-hmm. Um, what's, your, what's your views on clubs like Newcastle, PSG, Man City being owned by states with, let's say, shady human rights records? Yeah. Um, should, should that be allowed, do you think? I think the Saudi one, I mean, I think the Saudi one is almost unique. I mean, it's important to say, obviously, you know, what's what's going on with Qatar and the the, the kafala system and the sort of the abject treatment of human rights and the construction of these sports stadia, et cetera, is, is appalling. It's disgusting. But I think with the Saudis, you know, you are dealing with a regime which probably the most vile political regime in the world, um, certainly amongst the sort of major, the major powers, the G20, which it is in, you know, this is, this is a... <clears throat> This is a, a regime which had a, a Washington Post journalist chopped up into pieces. You know, they don't they don't muck about. It wasn't some sort of dissident you'd never heard of. It was an American citizen who wrote for the Washington Post. And they command such power, principally because of, of course, their, their fossil fuel reserves and the, the major holdings they have, economic holdings they have in the United States, that they can they can get away with it. So I think the Saudi Arabia thing is a bit different to the other ones, although, you know, none of them are particularly nice people. I would extend that also to probably, I don't know him, but, you know, Abramovich has obviously major con- concerns. I mean, m- most most billionaires do. I think that the solution has to be political and structural, however. You know, for me, it would be something like, yes, these people, you know, broadly speaking, anybody can invest in English football, but, you know, we should have something like 50 plus one. I, I feel like fans or, or supporters trust should have a say, at least, in how their clubs are run. And people say, oh, well, if you did that, then they wouldn't work. They would be terrible. They would be useless. Well, two of the best cl- run clubs in Europe, Bayern Munich and Ajax, run along exactly those lines. I don't think anybody can say seriously that Ajax is a poorly run business. Um, you know, it's in, a, it's in a very, you know, poor league, economically speaking. Um, yet they do... They do very well, and they they continue to perform very well in Europe. They continue to have a conveyor belt of great players. They have a great stadium. It's full. They have a quote unquote global brand. 
you know. And so what they're playing, you know, if only Manchester United could be run like Ajax. So the idea that, oh, you need these people and their money, not that the Glazers have any money, to um, to run a club, I think is strange. So I would start by giving supporters trusts 10% maybe. You know, I think we need to normalise that as a culture in England. You know, all football clubs, all professional clubs, 10% of the equity should be held by supporters trusts with a view to becoming 50 plus one. And I think, you know, once you do that, then the the Abramovich's, the Glazers, the Bin Salmans, they become far less interested in, in the Premier League. And I think for English football fans in particular, this is a big, and I know this goes beyond just England. There, there's, you know, there's investment in, in, in football clubs across Europe. But I think for English football fans in particular, this is a big, big thing to grapple with and because we don't realise it. You know, the Premier League is probably this country's number one cultural export now. Um, and And so... You know the ethics around it really matter, but also it, it poses really amazing political opportunities uh, because if you if you can politicise ownership in the Premier League, then you can do it around housing, around electricity, around public transport. You know who owns what and 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 whose interest is benefited by the status quo. And the status quo of football in England does not benefit fans. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I think. That to me is a more important question than you know which oligarch should be allowed to own a club. Um, although of course they're they're related. You know, look at the Glazers. I mean, in a way, I think the Glazers are more, from a footballing perspective, more reprehensible than Ben, ben Salmon. They've gone into a club. They've taken out more than a billion pounds since two thousand and five. The stadium is is trash. It's falling apart. I mean, not trash. That's an exaggeration. Seventy six thousand stadium, but it's it's the stadium is falling apart. Um, given the revenues at hand, it's terribly run. Uh, you know, I, I don't think it's a living wage employer. That might have changed. You know, I think four out of 20 clubs in the Premier League a few years ago were living wage employers. You know, you, you can really judge a business by how it treats its most poorly paid staff. Um, sure. So yeah. for me, that's a bigger thing than, than the, the billionaire ownership. But uh, I, I, sort of Bin Salman and the idea that you've got Geordies, you know, waving around Saudi Arabian flags, I find mm. it very strange. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Fifty plus one would be the dream for me. In, in, I mean, that should be the law. But I think that we've reached the we've 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 crossed the line now, haven't we? In mm. in in the Premier League, where it's like, how can you ever go to fifty plus one? I mean, these owners, these states are not just going to give away what they own. Especially like City, for example, have spent one point five billion. Um, you know, they they spent all that money. They're not just going to suddenly give away fifty percent of the club. It's it's. Uh, I don't know how we could ever get to that. Unfortunately, no. I I, um, com- I completely agree, and I think that's why you know you have to be you have to be realistic and say let's normalise a culture of fans having a say in their clubs. You know, I think I think ten percent, and maybe I'm getting a bit older. My you know, I'm getting a bit sort of conservative in my old age, but um, <laughs> I think yeah, you start no, small football, and think big. No, football's I think football is the one sport where you actually have to be conservative because you need rules in sport. If you don't have rules and you don't regulate it, you get what you've got now, and you have you know states owning clubs where is like from a sporting point of view, it's impossible for anyone to compete. You can't compete against a Saudi Arabian state or Qatar. You know, with the endless money that they've got, it's it's impossible. So, but that's the mess that, from a sporting point of view, that we're in now, um, in in football. Um, but I mean, going back to going back to the politics and just leading on from the sports washing, um, nations who are you know, who have shady records of human rights, but nations who are, let's say, committing human rights abuses or other atrocities. And like in the past, for example, we've seen apartheid South Africa, that they were banned from sport for for a long time. 
um, I'm not sure if they were banned from football, but they were banned from like cricket and, and, and rugby. And, and I mean, should countries like these be banned by FIFA uh, today? Or should we separate, again, as we were discussing before, should we separate sport from from these things? Because obviously, I mean, obviously the obvious talking point is Israel. There has actually been campaigns for, for FIFA to ban Israel um, with what's going on in Palestine. I mean, how do you think, what do you think should be the, the the way that football deals with these kind of issues? Yeah, it's such a great question. I mean, I'm I'm a critic of what's happening in in occupied Palestine. I support BDS. Do I think that Israel should be banned from the Olympics or from a World Cup or from you know not that they're ever going to qualify for a World Cup or from you know European qualifiers? You know, I don't think they should. I, 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 I maybe that again, maybe that's me being really weak. I mean, I. Because the, the thing is, the idea of excluding certain nation states on the basis of their politics is a very slippery slope. And it and and my concern is that once you start to see football used as a means of geopolitics, you know, the question is where does it end? And you know, it would start with Israel, or Israel will be a cause celebre or something. Uh, very quickly it becomes, yeah, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Russia, China, Bolivia, Venezuela. You know, um, and before you know it, sort of half the world can't compete in sports events. So mm. uh, I would be reticent to adopt that as an approach. In extreme examples, clearly it worked with apartheid South Africa, but that's because it was quite a sweet, it's quite a sweet generous, which is to say it was quite a unique case. You could say the same with regards to Israel. And I think people don't realize this sometimes. People say, oh, you know, oh, well, the left is obsessed with this one country. Why not China or Iran? And there are human rights abuses going on in those countries. Uh, sometimes worse, in fact, um, if you look, for instance, at um, the death penalty with regards to homosexuality in Iran. But the, the basis of the political settlement in those countries isn't built upon the displacement of 800,000 people, which is what happened with Israel. And it isn't based upon apartheid between two different peoples. So there's certainly a case mm. for Israel, but I think as a general principle, I'm ambivalent about it. Yeah. And it also depends who's making the decision. Like you say, it's a slippery slope, isn't it? It's you know who's who's deter- who decides which countries are should be banned and and, and who doesn't. It's um, that's a difficult one as well, well. I think you know you could have you could see a world where India and China are excluded because of their regimes. Both not great. Um, that's two point eight billion people excluded from participation at elite sport. So, you know, I mean, Israel offers an easy example in a way because it's not a massively competitive nation, you know, from a footballing um, sensibility. It's quite small. And what it does is incredibly egregious. But, yeah, the broader principle is a a tough one. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, Access journalism. And this is is a question. Access journalism and mainstream journalism. This is something that me and Nima, uh, who kind of, we, we pride our podcast on being a bit independent to, to the to the mainstream media. I and mean, I worked in the corporate media for 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 well over a decade. So I know exactly how it works. And Novara Media can be regarded as as I mean I would regard it as an alternative to the mainstream and corporate media. Mm-hmm. And for those who've not worked in the mainstream media, they may not <clears throat> fully understand what I'm gonna ask Aaron now, but I think an increasing amount of people will understand. But it goes like this. So the way I see it, when you work for the mainstream or corporate media, let's just say the BBC or Rai, or maybe they're not the best examples because they're public broadcasters, but one of the main newspapers, um, it's very difficult to 
to do certain journalism, I would say. I say you'd have to toe the line of your corporate employer. You know, there's certain people, issues that are literally, literally untouchable. You can't mm. go there. Yep. Uh, if there's a risk of being sued, you don't go there. If you are going to upset a sponsor or a corporate interest with a story, you don't go there. Um, but most importantly, in the coming to access journalism, if you're going to risk your relationship with, in football's case, you know, a club or a player or an agency, you don't go there. I mean, that's what's known as access journalism. Yeah. You, you basically, you get access by self-censoring. Um, and that's the most powerful form of censorship, in my opinion, self-censorship, yeah. more than actual enforced censorship. Um, and, you know, I'll give you an example just before I put it over to you. I mean, I worked at a company a few years ago where we weren't able to run a, a public story. It, this was already in the public domain of a footballer's rape case because the company had a close relationship with the player. <laughs> so, I mean, that is, for me, that kind of, in a nutshell, it, it just describes the, the the mainstream media, the corporate media, and it's why I kind of got turned off it, to be honest with you. Um, so, I mean, I'd like, you know, I'd love to know what your thoughts are as someone who's been, you know, with Navarra Media being like the kings of the of the independent media. I mean, how do you how do you view this whole mainstream media versus independent media debate? Yeah, well, I think for football fans to make it sort of make it maybe a bit more comprehensible. <clears throat> you know, when I think of Navarra, I think of you know the, the Manchester United uh, dictum: hated, adored, never ignored, which is is what you do when you when you do independent media, like you say. Some people really don't like it. Some people do like it. But you, you, you're generally not ignored because you're telling stories that nobody else is telling a lot of the time, especially when you're breaking news stories. Like we broke the, the Labour leak story, which maybe some of your audience will be familiar with. And it was, it was precisely the dynamic you're talking about of access journalism, which is why nobody else would touch it. And it was, it, it was a profound public interest. You know, the, that's why we did it. Because, and the lawyer, our lawyers said that, no, you have to run this story. I didn't say you have to run it. So obviously it's an editorial calculation. But they said, of course, you have every right to run this story. And it's had, it's had huge implications for the Labour Party. They're, they've now got legal cases going on. There's being challenges to all sorts of things. You know, it's got, it's got political and financial implications for the party for, for many, many years. Now, we, we were the only organization willing to run that story Yes. I mean, the lawyer thing I think is overused actually, because the lawyers told us it was fine quite quickly. Um, I think that's often used as a means of self-censorship. Mm. So, oh, we can't do that mm. because, you know, it's not been legal or it'll take ages to legal. Mm, you know, mm. uh, you can pull some punches and, you know, lawyer things properly and still tell a really good story. But the, the self-censorship thing is, is, is bang on. There was a great example of this a few years ago where Andrew Marr was speaking to the academic Noam Chomsky and he says, look, I, nobody tells me what questions I should be asking. What a ridiculous thing to say I'm, I'm you know, I, I self-censor. Um, and Chomsky says, well, look, I, I doubt if you ask the wrong kind of questions, you'd be sat here asking me questions. So, which is mm -hmm. to say, you wouldn't be a BBC journalist with your own show if you didn't ask the quote-unquote right questions. Exactly. So uh, th th that's exactly it. And I, th I think most people intuitively get that. Um, and I think that's why... There's been this explosion in, in new media, independent media, non-corporate media in terms of football coverage. Because, mm. you know, it's not about, oh, the, the, what I find super interesting, actually, is that the, the, the people who, 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 who are most credulous when it comes to corporate mainstream media, it's not about, you know, who's earning the most money or who's got the most qualifications. You know, um, I, you know if I look at, for instance, the Trump stuff, no, I don't like Donald Trump. I mean, he's, he's, some of his stuff's quite funny. But if you if you look at Very if you funny. look at some of the so yeah some of the stories that were being latched on by the New York Times etc like the Steele dossier 
oh. um, you know, the, the P tapes and all stuff. It was complete fabrication. And I'm not. I'm not just saying that. That they have literally, you know, they People have, are they going have to made... jail right now because of that. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it's, it was complete fabrication, and yet you had huge numbers of highly educated, you know, smart, you know, very affluent people sort of believing it. They were very credulous. And what I think is so powerful, it gives me a bit of faith in humanity, is actually the default of a lot of new media not just with politics, but with sport, with all number of areas, is actually not cynicism, because that's not powerful. Cynicism is very easy, and I don't like it, but there's a very healthy skepticism. Hmm. you know. And, and, and people, the default of younger people in particular, because they've been raised in this new media environment, is to say, well, whose interest is served by that relationship? Why are you saying that? What are you getting out of it? Hmm. And I do think people look at independent media covering their favorite club or whatever, and they see legacy media, I won't name any names, and... and you know, and they see, you know, two different completely genres of journalism. And it's very visceral. So, yeah, in sport, it's a problem. But in, in politics, it's deadly, you know, because ultimately, mm. the, the people who, you know, run our governments have huge power over us. And again, another example of, of access journalism, I just find this a remarkable example. Again, Andrew Marr, there's nothing unique about him. It just happens to be two examples. He wrote a novel, I think, six, seven, eight years ago. You can probably find it on Amazon if you, you know, type in Andrew Marr. And the <laughs> launch event for that novel, guess where it was? The launch event. It was at number 10 Downing Street. Oh, my oh, God. <laughs> yeah. And you think, wait, your, your job is to, is, to, is to scrutinize these people. They've done you hmm. a favor in launching your book. Like, it's about scratching each other's backs. It's, a ter- it's terrible. Again, it's just basic professionalism. You know, they, sh- they shouldn't be frightened of you. They should be, oh, God, if Andrew Marr gets hold of this, uh, we're in deep, you know, shit. We, we, you know, we have to do X, Y, Z. Obviously, they don't behave like that if they, if they have that kind of relationship with one another. Um, so it's a huge problem in political journalism, yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's like George, I'm not sure if it was George Orwell that actually said it or if it was misquoted to him, but, you know, it's basically public relations, a lot of the stuff you see. Yeah. In, in in the mainstream and corporate media mm, and for sure um l- turning back to your point earlier about ownership of clubs and fan ownership uh, one of our patrons joe mihalic he sent in a question um and he asks is fan ownership the ideal model model for football or would it better if the councils or municipalities own the teams and they in turn were elected by people living there locally you know, I, I don't think there's any one model which is the model which football clubs should be adhering to. You know, if if, if Jack Walker, you know, who who owned Blackburn Rovers, mm. um, he was a, he was he was a good oligarch. If yeah. Jack if Jack Walker wants to walk into Blackburn Rovers and spend two hundred million pounds to make them the champions, which he did in the mid nineteen nineties, no strings attached, and he's not trying to make it a global brand, and you know, or, or whitewash human rights abuses. I, I don't have a problem with that, and I think you know I'm from Bournemouth. Um, I I would go to watch Bournemouth occasionally as a kid, but they were in what, what is now League One, so it wasn't very good football. Um, <laughs> if 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 somebody like him worth half a billion pounds, I'm going to buy Bournemouth. I'm a Bournemouth guy, done good, and I'm going to you know build a thirty thousand seat stadium, invest in you know uh, the academy, get young players from Dorset going up the football pyramid because there's incredibly few footballers that come from the south of England, not including London, but like. People like Graham Lasso, Matt Letizier, quite quite rare. Um, 
you know, that would be quite cool. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm up for that. I have no real problems with it. But of course, that's the exception, not the rule. Hmm. Um, and, and, the, and, and where you get weak political arguments is people saying, well, Jack Walker did it, so there's no problem with big money coming into football. Well, we know there is. Look at Adam Gadamack in, in, um, in Portsmouth. Look at, like I said, the Glazers. Look at Mike Ashley. Uh, you know, we, could, we could go on and on in terms of bad I mean, MK Dons, what happened oh, to Wimbledon God. and MK Dons, I mean, Milton Keynes. And, I mean, it's just insane. Isn't it, it was incredible. That was incredible. And, and also you think, I wonder if that would happen now as well, you know, because mm. I think now people understand like the, the brand equity of football heritage and English football. They get mm. it, I think. Even like complete idiots like the Glazers get it. So you think this is a club which was the, which was which was competing in the Premier League. Their story was incredible, yeah. And you've just and it's in London, which is a huge is a huge consumer market. If that's the game you want to play, and and there weren't that many, you know, there were no big clubs in South London. I mean, there still aren't, arguably. You know, not taking in Chelsea, but you know, Wimbledon, you got Crystal Palace. There's no big big clubs. You think if that's the game you want to play, why are you going to Milton Bloody Keynes? <laughs> Crazy, but you know you, you you you're right. So yeah, for me, for me, I think fans have to have a say. Um, it doesn't mean they always get it right. You know, there's that great clip of um, of uh, Harry Redknapp being told by you know was that fan AGM West Ham AGM that Frank Lampard would never amount to anything. <laughs> you know, that's and they were saying was it um, Scott Canning or somebody? I that's can't the word. Yeah. Scott Canning. Yeah. yeah, you know, they do cry. <laughs> you know, so fans don't always know best. Of course, they don't, but that. that that guy, even he had an idiotic position on Frank Lampard, he still goes and buys a shirt. He still gets the season mm. ticket. He, he should have some say in how the club is run. Yeah. yeah. The problem is now is that, um, certainly in the Premier League, but the, the clubs value the international global fan base. This is part of globalism is uh, much more than, than the local fan. Uh, in fact, you know, uh, uh, I think that's even, I think it might be Nanielli, the Juventus president even said that, the, the the global fans are more important than the local fans, um, because that's where they make their money commercially. Uh, there's only a very small. I mean, if you take Manchester United, I don't even know how many <laughs> how many Man United fans there even are in Manchester. Mm. Um, whereas you see how many Manchester United fans there are in Asia, and you know, so who gets the voice? Is it the local fans that go to the matches every every game, or is it the that live in the city, or is it those around the world? It's um, I mean, I mean, yeah. maybe I'm going to sound quite, you know, insular here, but I think it has to be the local fans, doesn't it? You know, and I, and I say, and because I think mm. international fans are attracted to a club because of its story, its players, but, but that, yeah. that's been created by the local people. You look at United, you think of the Busby Babes, Samat, building the stadium mm. after the Second World War, playing at Main Road. Absolutely, I, mean, I agree. But I just incredible. think from a financial point of view, and, you know, the, the likes of the Glazers, they only care about, the, about you know, getting their dividends and, of course. Like, you know, the financial, then, you know, it's but the international fans. That, but even that from matter. a financial perspective, I don't think it's stupid, you know, because people, again, like, you're trying to recuperate the energy, the fan culture, which, let's be real, has been lost in the Premier League, you know, substantially. Mm-hmm. And that's what people are attracted to. You know, even now, you know, football fans across Europe, they identify English football culture as interesting because of it, they, they appeal to a culture, especially, especially in Italy when I was there anyway. You know, they appeal to a fan culture, which, you know, had its downsides, like beating people up and, you know, hooliganism. Mm. But they appeal to mm. a fan culture, which was very different to the one we have now. So, mm. I mean, in, in many ways, that is the product. You know, as, yeah. as much as the players on the pitch, you know, having Agreed. Mancunians or Scousers. I mean, Liverpool's a great example, right? Liverpool's footballing brand is iconic because of Scousers. Yeah. It wouldn't be the same club mm. without them. No, no, absolutely. You're right. 
you're right. But also the price of football has gone up so much that a lot of these traditional fans have been, uh, certainly young fans have been priced out. Um, okay, final question. Um, and then we'll finish just to finish, then we'll finish off of a game. Um, so I just, this is something I just came up while, just while we were recording. So I was trying to think of communist footballers. Um, mm. The couple of, couple of famous ones I know of, definitely. Socrates, who was actually a former Fiorentina player, um, where you, you're, that's where you live. Um, and uh, Paul Breitner, a Germany, Germany legend who was very famous. He used to grow a massive beard. He actually used to read the Little Red Book uh, and, and then got called a hypocrite because he, he then became one of the first high-profile, uh, did a commercial selling, mm. <laughs> selling stuff and everyone's calling him a hypocrite. They're the two that I can, I can think of. But, I mean, do you know of any others? Or, or I guess, more importantly, have you ever had like, any association with footballers who support like, left-wing causes like your own or, or even supported Jeremy Corbyn like, during the, you know, in the last few years when he was, in, when he was at Labour? There is uh, the, the first one that comes to mind is uh, is uh, Cristiano Lucarelli, who used to mm. play for Livorno. Livorno, yeah, um, mm. and you know, again, mid two thousands. You know, he was in around the fringes of the Italian national squad. He was a mm. he was a good journeyman who sort of really peaked towards the end of his a, a, a sort of career. He was solid centre forward, very political. In 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 England, I think the funniest one. You know, this is a bit left field. It might be Chris Powell. Okay. Yeah. Who, <laughs> That's who, interesting. Yeah. I think in the late 80s, Chris Powell was like part of some communist group. Really? Oh. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Really? I might, I might, maybe you're going to have to legal this one. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure that he wrote, he like wrote explicitly for like some Trotskyist organization or something. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. And no idea. Yeah. Yeah. Well, obviously a lot of that, um, I'm not saying he was a member or whatever, but because obviously you had, um, Rock Against Racism, and you had these broad kind of umbrella groups against Thatcherism, which encompassed, you know, liberals who just didn't like Margaret Thatcher for quite good reasons to, to, you know, communists. So maybe he was just brought in through that. But there's a few examples. Yeah, there's a few good ones in 80s football culture. Um, In terms of socialists, I mean, there's obviously many, many more. You've got uh, Shankly, you've got, um, you know, Samat Busby a little bit. You've got Alex Ferguson, although you know his, his political credentials are a bit stranger, but <laughs> I, I, I think I think Alex Ferguson's. You know, you read, you watch the documentary rather on Amazon, and you think, yeah, you know, in in another, in the early twentieth century, this guy would have been on a picket line and would have been a very militant person. Um, in terms of communists now, mm. I mean, you have got Diego Maradona, of course. You have yeah. got the Shea tattoo on the arm, um, yeah. and of course you had. And this is a, this is a bit of a, a bugbear for me. Is that, and I don't know why we don't talk about this more on the left, is how good club football and international football was in the Eastern Bloc under actually existing socialism. Mm. You know, so like, okay, I'm not saying they were, I, I never went to them. I have no idea, you know. <laughs> I'm not saying that they, it was a great way to run a country. But if you look at, you know, like Stoya Bucharest being European champions, um, if you look at, you know, the Polish national team during the 1980s, um, you look at the USSR in the 60s, what a great mm. side it was. I think they won the European Championships yeah. once, maybe. Yeah. yeah. You know, super, super competitive um, teams. Um, Hungary a bit different. You go back further. I think that's a, a kind of different football sort of lineage. Yeah. But it's interesting that, you know, you had these, like I say, Stoya Bucharest, outstanding team in a very poor country. And now, you know, it's a developed country. And, and, and we've got, well, we're not developed country. It's a, it's a mixed market economy. 
And if you want to make yourself anything of yourself as a footballer in Romania, you get the hell out. So, you know, that's perhaps another one, you know, football under actually existing communism, socialism, wasn't so bad. You know, they were, they were, uh, they were performing pretty well. Another one is, you know, former Yugoslavia. And again, Mm. I don't want to get into like the sort of ethno-nationalist politics of that, but incredible footballers and club sides were being produced. Mm-hmm. Um, which has yeah, stopped. Red Star Belgrade. I mean that. Yeah. You know the the Balkan culture. I mean of, of football is the technique, the technical players they produce, especially in the late eighties and early nineties. I mean, unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and, and I mean that. You guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean that the, the Croatia side you get in 1998. A lot of yeah. them were basically were playing for the Yugoslavian team in the early 1990s. Yeah. Prozinecki was, I remember. Yeah, yeah. Boban, yeah. um, mm. Devil Shuka, and you think. Mm. You know, Denmark, of course, famously replaced them in 92. They could have possibly won that tournament. They probably um, would have. I mean, you, if you go through the squad list of that 92 tournament, it is by far the best uh, squad on paper. It was unbelievable. Um, yeah. from, so from th- that's that's my answer in terms of communist footballers is that we had, you know, <laughs> we had communist yeah. countries and club teams. Yeah. Right. Before Incredible. we before we let you go, uh, we have this game. We play a rapid fire game. I'll give you two or more uh, options, and you just pick one, and you don't have to give an answer. You know, expand on the answer if you don't want to, and you can if you want. Okay. Yeah. First one, very fairly simple. Everyone in the world's been asked this: uh, Lionel Messi or Cristiano Ronaldo? I, I I have the same answer as I think I heard somebody else say, which is Lionel Messi is the better player. But if you had to have a, a single player produce a goal in a single game, high stakes, Cristiano Ronaldo. Hmm. Pele or Diego Maradona? Maradona. Francesco Totti, Roberto Baggio or Alessandro Del Piero? For pure talent, Baggio. Hmm. Franco Baresi or Paolo Maldini? Wow. Hmm. Oh, that is tough, huh? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Maldini lasts longer, so I, I suppose Maldini. St- rather stranded with on a desert island, Gary Neville or Roy Keane? Good. I think Keane, <laughs> I actually quite like Roy Keane, but I think he'd do your head in, wouldn't he? The whining and the moaning. <laughs> well, wouldn't Gary as well? I mean, we had yeah, Sven Eriksson on and he called him a professional moaner. On the really? yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. Maybe or maybe Kino would actually just get, get stuck in and do things. Yeah, it's a tough one. God, that is a tough one, isn't it? Actually, maybe Roy Keane would just shut up and keep himself busy. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll, go, I'll go with Kino. At least he'd be entertaining. Yeah. Um, England to win the next five World Cups. Or Jeremy Corbyn to Jeremy Corbyn to become the next Prime Minister of the UK. Oh, the next five World Cups. I mean, that's, <laughs> um, um, I would even one World Cup. I was going to say, yeah, yeah. Um, I, 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 you know, this is going to sound strange. I would take the football because I firmly believe if he was the Prime Minister, that you know. Um, there would be a coup of some kind. There'd be a military coup, and I don't want I don't want to be responsible for that. So I'm going to say the five World Cups. Yeah. Well, there already was one covertly. Yeah. So. Exactly. Yeah. He wasn't even empowered, poor guy. Yeah, right. so I'll, I'll take that over. Um, yeah. yeah. And finally, the most contentious question we probably asked you: pineapple on pizza, food heaven or food hell? I mean, this is ridiculous. Come on. <laughs> Pineapple, pineapple should be nowhere near a pizza. Thank you. Especially tinned pineapple. <laughs> Thank you very much. That's the correct answer. <laughs> 
<laughs> thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming on, Aaron. We really appreciate it. And if people want to find you on social media, um, where can they find you and where can they find Novara Media? Yeah, so Navarro Media is uh, navarromedia.com, uh, Navarro Media on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Um, I'm on at Aaron Bastani on Twitter. That's primarily where I sort of work, I guess. But if, you, if you're if kind of just interested in what we do at Navarro Media, the best place to start is our YouTube channel, Navarro Media. Well, thank you very much for coming on. And everybody, until next time, we'll be back on Monday doing a review show. So until then, take care of each other and bye-bye.